We sang a few moments ago the words taken from um, the Henry W. Wadsworth Longfellow poem, I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day, and let me read you two, two of the verses of that poem again, because they fit what I'm going to say this morning in the sermon. I heard the bells on Christmas Day, their old familiar carols play, and wild and sweet the words repeat of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And in despair, I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Our scripture text is Matthew chapter 2. I'd like to read for us from verses 11 to 16. You'll see them on the screen. Let me tell you what's been happening Magi from the east, Magi, the Magi were a Persian tribe of people in Old Testament times who actually tried to overthrow the government of the Medes and the Persians and were crushed. And then we hear nothing more about them for a while until we find them bringing gifts to Caesar to honor him. And uh, they were astrologers who watched the stars and from what they saw in the sky, they believed that a child had been born of kingly descent in Judea, and they came to offer him their worship. It is interesting that all over the world at that time, we read this in um, some of the ancient historians like Tacitus, for example, Josephus, uh, people believed that a king coming out of little tiny Judea would rule the world. And so that prepared these men for what they saw in the sky. They came to uh, Jerusalem and then to Bethlehem where they presented their gifts to Christ, the Christ child, and worshipped him. Now this is verse 11. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother, Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and of incense and of myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem in its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. The massacre of the children around Bethlehem is one of the most heinous evils reported in the scriptures, and the scriptures report many The Bible doesn't pull any punches about the fallen state of man and the horrors of the world. After the shepherds whom we read about in Luke's gospel returned to their fields, and after Jesus was taken to Jerusalem to be presented at the temple when he was eight days old, there's a blank spot in the biblical record. 
We know that the Magi came to worship the child, but that may have been as many as two years later. The picture that we see on Christmas cards and displayed in nativity scenes of shepherds and wise men standing shoulder to shoulder at the manger is almost certainly inaccurate. Whereas the shepherds in Luke chapter 2 found a newborn baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger, a, a stable's feeding trough, the Magi found the infant child Jesus with his mother living in a house. So some time passed between the two events. What happened in that intervening period? The Bible doesn't tell us. But surely the baby grew. He started using words like mama, abba. The family somehow came into possession of a house. We don't know if they were renting it or if they'd purchased it or if someone had offered them a place to stay. We don't know when they came from Nazareth to Bethlehem, if they had come with money or if they arrived in Bethlehem penniless. During that intervening time, the baby began to crawl and learn to walk. It's a startling thought. The Lord of heaven couldn't take three steps without falling down. His vocabulary increased. Another startling thought. There was a time when the eternal word had only a handful of words at his disposal with which to express himself. He began to play with toys, maybe wooden ones that Joseph made for him, boats and houses and trees. Think of it again, the Lord of glory industriously playing make-believe on the living room floor. The mystery of godliness is great. God became a man, St. Paul says. We can be pretty confident that these kinds of things happened in those first two years. One thing we know for sure, the shepherds who came on the night of the birth did not keep the angels' news to themselves. In Luke 2.17, we read, when they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what they'd been told them, what had been told them about this child. They blabbed the news to everyone who would listen. So, Imagine that when the Holy Family first came to Bethlehem, you were one of those who turned them away. Maybe you called them slackers. You refused to have immoral people like that living under your roof, leading your children astray. But afterwards, you heard the news, and everybody in the village heard the news about this baby that was born. The shepherds began telling everyone about what the angel messenger and the angelic host, you realize a host is an army company, the army company of angels, had done and what they'd said, that this child is the Lord Christ who will save his people from their sins. The from their sins language probably dropped out of sight pretty quickly replaced in people's minds with from their enemies. After that, the Holy Family may have become celebrities in the little town of Bethlehem. People from around the village would sneak a peek at the baby who would grow up to be their deliverer. The very people who turned Joseph away were now treating him and Mary with the utmost respect because of what they'd heard about this child. 
But the news about the baby wouldn't stop in Bethlehem. Other people would hear. After all, the little town of Bethlehem was about five miles from the big city of Jerusalem. And the shepherds had contacts in Jerusalem. The sheep they raised were all headed to the temple to be sacrifices, mostly for Passover. The lead shepherd would contract with the temple every year. How many sheep he and his people would provide and at what price. It wouldn't be at all odd for him to mention to the priest what had happened that night around Bethlehem. In fact, it would be odd if he didn't. Of course, news didn't spread then as it does now, instantly. It wouldn't appear in a Google search an hour later. Six minutes ago, a child was born in Bethlehem, reputed to be king of Israel. News spread more slowly then, but it spread. And with it, rumors would spread too, and all kinds of exaggeration and falsehoods. But sooner or later, word would get around. Now think of what that would mean for Jesus as he grew up. He would be a celebrity. People would treat him like a king. People would wait on him hand and foot. Common people would shelter him from Herod, that illegitimate king of the Jews, who was not really a Jew and was hardly even a king. As news of his identity spread, he would be spared every hardship, tutored by the very best teachers, honored by all. But that was not the earthly life planned for the one who was to be tested in every way that we're tested. A life of ease and respect was not to be his. As Dorothy Sayers put it, he went through the whole of human experience, from the trivial irritations of family life and the cramping restrictions of hard work and lack of money, to the worst horrors of pain and humiliation, defeat, despair, and death. When he was the man, she writes, he played the man. He was born in poverty and died in disgrace and thought it well worthwhile. From what scriptures do tell us of the shepherds and the very public broadcast of their experience of the public reception of Jesus at the temple eight days after his birth by righteous Simeon and the prophetess Anna, of the extraordinary visit of foreign dignitaries, we call them wise men, the Bible calls them magi, bearing gifts for a king, the king of Israel, we can assume that all of Bethlehem knew about Jesus before very long. Had the village inhabitants had their way, they would have seen their own son, that's how they would have come to think of him, grow into a military genius who would rout the foreign occupiers and lead the nation and their village in particular to glory. That was not to be. This baby was not to be a military genius who would rescue the people from their enemies, but a savior who would deliver the people from their sins. He was not to be a soldier trained in killing, but a lamb presented for sacrifice. The lamb slain from the foundations of the earth. Yet with the reputation that now accompanied him, it seemed his course had been set. But it wasn't the course the Son of God could travel. Under the circumstances, Bethlehem would not, it could not, continue to be his home. He would soon leave the village 
And as far as we know from Scripture, he never went back. Never stepped into Bethlehem again. But what would bring about that move? Something no one would expect by a means no one would desire. The Holy Family left Bethlehem because of a threat on Jesus' life. Remember the Magi whose coming must have set Bethlehem buzzing with excitement? But before they arrived in Bethlehem, they stopped in Jerusalem to ask, where is the one who's been born king of the Jews? That question, in the capital city of a nation whose rightful king had been deposed and banished hundreds of years earlier, certainly caught people's attention. Where is the one born king of the Jews? Had an heir to the ancient line of kings been born? It was the talk of all Jerusalem. But one person was more interested in that news than any other. Herod, the illegitimate king, who after the war had been placed in power by Rome to head the occupation government. When he heard that a rightful king had been born, his head must have started spinning. A rightful king. All this publicity. There would soon be talk of revolution. There might be attempts made on his life. There would be riots. His Roman benefactors would not be pleased. Some of the same kinds of things going on in the Middle East today were going on in the Middle East then. In Herod's mind, there was no room in Israel for a born king. And he was determined to deal with what he saw as a threat. Herod the Great brooked no rivals. After all, hadn't he killed two of his own sons because he feared they would usurp the throne? Hadn't he killed his own mother because he thought she was involved in the plot? I think there's no question that Herod suffered from mental illness. But in spite of that, he was diabolically clever. He asked the Magi to find the child and report back to him his location so that he too could come and worship him. Of course, his real plan was to send soldiers to that location to kill the boy and his family. But even as he spoke with them, he was developing a contingency plan. And he made sure to find out the earliest possible date the boy could have been born. Herod knew how long it would take for the Magi and their caravan to reach Bethlehem. He knew pretty much when to expect them to return to Jerusalem. He probably placed Roman soldiers, Jewish ones wouldn't do for this, he probably placed Roman soldiers on alert, on standby, ready to strike. But the anticipated hour came and the Magi had not returned. Perhaps he waited a few more hours, perhaps even a day or two. And then he knew the Magi had outwitted him and he was furious. But remember, he had a backup plan. He had ascertained the earliest possible date for the birth of his rival. And so he sent troops to swoop down on Bethlehem and comb the countryside around it with orders to kill every boy two years old or younger. Every single one. We're horrified when even one child dies in a combat zone. Our military today does everything they can to prevent it. Herod did everything he could to cause it. He targeted children. It was heartless and cruel. It was pure, unadulterated evil. The soldiers carried out their orders. The church refers to this event as the slaughter of the innocents. 
We don't know how many boys under the age of two lived in and around Bethlehem, but after this night, there were none. Families were torn apart, children violently killed before their parents' eyes, and parents very likely killed trying to save their children. So here in the middle, I want you to grasp this, in the middle of the Christmas story, the story of peace on earth, goodwill to men, we have one of the ugliest, most obscene events in history. And that's how things are in this broken world. Good is not insulated from evil. Where good is most powerful, evil is always present. When people do their best, there's always someone doing his worst. Wherever God is at work, the devil is busy. In the joyous story of the birth of the Savior, we have the repugnant news of the slaughter of the innocents. In this world, good and evil are inseparable. Because that's all we've ever known, we don't think of that as strange. This admixture of good and evil is the environment in which we live. We're no more surprised by it than a fish is surprised by water. This is what life is like. That admixture is everywhere present. The joy of birth is accompanied by travail and pain. When we move on to better things, we must always leave some good things behind. Even when it comes to one of life's happiest days, getting married, a man must leave his father and mother in order to cleave to his wife. She must leave her father's home to cleave to her husband. For every gain, there's a loss. For every pleasure, there's a pain. In this world, good and evil are inseparable. You may not like it, but that's our world. If that upsets you, you're not alone. It upsets God, too. But unlike us, he can and is doing something about it. Things will not always be this way. In heaven and throughout the age to come, there will be many things that are odd to us. We may encounter angels. You may talk with an angel. Perhaps we'll converse with six-winged seraphs. We may stand in awe before the living creatures of the revelation. We will experience soul-thrilling ecstasy and worship. We'll have no more pain. Think about that. No arthritis. No headaches. No more crying. No more grief. No more death. We can barely imagine those things. What we can't imagine is a world where good is not tinged with evil. Where there's no compromise. A world where gain is not accompanied by loss. Where Pleasure is not won at the price of pain. A world where cleaving does not necessitate leaving. In the world we know, the inseparability of good and evil is a law every bit as real as gravity. We've lived with it every moment of our lives, from our mother's womb to the grave, and we can't conceive of it being otherwise. But it will not always be so. But for now, good and evil are inseparable. But I want you to see the other side of that. 
Yes, every good is tinged with evil. Every gain accompanied by loss. We cannot separate the good we long for from the evil we dread. But neither, by the unfathomable wisdom of God, can evil separate itself from good. It's been so for me. Perhaps the greatest evil that's befallen me in my life, and my life has been a relatively easy one, was the death of my brother. But because of my brother's terminal illness, I came to faith in Christ. Does that mean his death wasn't really evil? No, it was evil. Death is, as St. Paul says, an enemy, the last enemy. But evil can no more separate itself from good then good can separate itself from evil. God himself sees to it. Over the years, I've asked many people if their greatest spiritual growth has come during times of ease or times of hardship. They overwhelmingly answer hardship. It was in divorce, they say, in illness, in bankruptcy, in grief, that they found Christ, that they grew in their knowledge and love of him. Does that mean that divorce and illness and bankruptcy and grief are good? Never. But even in the midst of evil, God will bring good. Absolutely nothing can stop him. Look at what happens in our text. The madman Herod's decision to kill an innocent child was evil through and through. And then to kill many innocent children. In our profoundly broken world, such horrors take place. God did not overrule Herod's free will and stop the evil. But he did bring good from it. See, not even a king can stop God. So because of Herod's evil, the Messiah was moved from Bethlehem to Egypt which fulfilled the words of the prophet Hosea, and then on to Nazareth in accordance with prophecy. This was necessary, as we've seen, and it was a great good, but it came on the back of a great evil. Still, it would be a mistake, and it would lead to serious confusion to say that God had a reason for the slaughter of the innocents, as if he caused it. Don't blame him for this horrific evil. Blame Herod. He caused it. But God will take evil and bring good from it. That was St. Paul's great insight when he wrote, all things work together for good for those who love God, those who are called according to his purpose. God will not allow evil to have the final word. It only seems that way if we stop listening. That's our peril. There is no danger that God will not bring good. The only danger is that we will miss it, that we won't cooperate with him, that we will become so obsessed with the evil that we miss the good. That could have happened to Joseph and his little family. With Herod's assassins bearing down on them, God warned Joseph to get up in the middle of the night and flee to Egypt. But Joseph could have said, no, not this time. I've had enough. I mean, it's just not fair. I finally get my family settled in a house, and people are actually treating us well. They like us. And Bethlehem is where I've always wanted to live, my family's hometown, and business is picking up. 
So here we are, and here we'll stay. Joseph could have obsessed over the unfairness. He could have argued with God about the difficulty of it all. He could have stopped listening. And then evil would have had the final word, at least for him. But he did not. He cooperated with God in the good he wanted to bring, even though he didn't understand it. In the story of the slaughter of the innocents, we see these two important truths. In this world, evil will worm its way into every good. Even at the celebration of the Savior's birth, evil interjects itself. Herod's vicious soldiers follow on the heels of the wise men. On the coattails of worship comes murder. You may not want it to be that way. Who does? But that is our world. The world we've made. And until God remakes it, which he has promised to do, it will be so. But see the other important truth here. Good will always piggyback on evil. Evil cannot escape it. It can't shake good off. God will not let evil have the last word. He doesn't take away free will. He doesn't prevent the evil, but he forces it to bring good. We see that reality most clearly in the most evil thing that ever happened. When God's own son came, bringing good news and abundant life, evil men under the influence of beings more evil than themselves killed him. Of all the evil deeds of men and devils, that was the worst, and God didn't stop it. Though it involved his own son. He didn't take away the free will of those involved. He didn't prevent the crucifixion. Instead, he brought the resurrection. From the death of Christ, he brought the salvation of the world. That may be our world, this admixture of good and evil, but this is our God. It is never a question of whether God will bring good. He who brought ultimate good from ultimate evil will bring good out of the evils that we endure. The question is, will we cooperate with him? There's something else I want you to see here before we close. In verse 15, Matthew writes that Joseph and Mary stayed with Jesus in Egypt until the death of Herod. We're not sure how many years that was. Probably just a couple. Herod died in 4 BC, actually, which, if you think about it, means Jesus was born before the first year AD. He was born somewhere before 4 BC. So, Matthew writes that Joseph and Mary stayed with Jesus until the death of Herod. I like the way the original language reads. He was there until the end of Herod. All the Herods on earth will sooner or later come to an end. The spirit of Herod, which has reached into our own hearts, will come to an end. And in the most fabulous reversal of all time, evil would be stood on its head. In verse 16, Herod was furious because he realized he had been outwitted. The word is usually translated mocked or ridiculed. 
by the Magi. I think there's a glorious picture here of what God is even now doing to evil and will one day bring to fulfillment. He is outwitting it. He makes it serve his purpose every time. And someday we will ridicule it. Don't think that in the age to come we'll sit around bemoaning the hardships we faced, the injustice and unfairness that we endured. You'll no more think about that than you now think about the overcrowding and boring diet in your mother's womb. If we think about it at all, it will be to exult in the wisdom of God and revel in the glorious defeat over evil. We will marvel at how it all came about and our hearts will be eternally glad. Faith does not wait for that day to be glad. It owns that future in the present and rejoices over the victory of God in advance. So be glad on this Christmas day. God will have the last word, and it will be a good one. So be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Trust in him, as the psalmist says, at all times. And he will never let you be put to shame. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we rejoice in the birth of our Savior and for what it means to us that good will triumph evil will be destroyed and God will reign over all for this great, great good. We worship you and offer you our very selves in the name of the one we love, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.